I'm excited to jump into the uh, new series that we're beginning today. It's going to be an eight-week series, one of the longest series we've ever done. I've been working on this since November and have been so excited to bring this to you. Uh, Before I do that, let me give an update on our Dream Center offering. For those of you that were here last week with Caroline Barnett, you know it was just a fantastic message, very challenging, very inspiring. And, you know, as a pastor, I feel responsible that anytime we as a church decide to give outside of our church or receive a love offering for someone, that we make sure it's a good investment of our missions dollars, that where we're giving does what they say they're going to do and makes a huge impact for the kingdom of God. And the Dream Center is one of those places that we fully believe in. Uh, Many of you have been there before. You've taken the tour. You've seen the facility. Uh, It's just one of, I've been all over the world and I've yet to run across a a church that is doing more holistically for the community than what they're doing at the Dream Center in Los Angeles. I don't just say that because I've been a part of it uh, for 17 years before coming here. I say that because it's absolutely true. Uh, What they're doing is amazing. And so if you have not had a chance to to pray and ask God what you should do to be a part of this, to partner with us. Uh, our goal, every time we do a love offering, we've done this the last couple times for China and, and before for the Dream Center, is on average, we give about $25,000 as a church when we do those special love offerings. For the Dream Center right now, we're currently over 17000 so we're close to the goal right now. And I know there's, there's still people that haven't uh, had a chance to get it in. There's a couple days left. And so just pray. Uh, one of the things we do is as a church, we never ask you to give money, but we unapologetically ask you to ask God what you should do. Like, I, I'm never going to ask you to give, but I have no issue at all asking you to talk to God about it and just listen to him. And I always tell people, if you want to learn how to hear the voice of God, a lot of people say, well, how do I hear God's voice? How do I hear God speak to me? The easiest way to learn how to hear the voice of God is always ask him about what you should give. That's his favorite thing to begin speaking to you on. Anyone that's ever experienced that knows exactly what I'm saying. It's the absolute truth. He loves, and here's the reason. It's because God is generous. For God so loved the world that he gave. He is a very, very generous God, and he He loves it when his kids are generous too. Like God just loves it when his children look like him. And so he'll always uh, help you and encourage you uh, to be generous. If you haven't had a chance, just ask him what you should do and then partner with us uh, to be a blessing to the Dream Center in Los Angeles. Well, we're beginning this new series today. It's week number one of an eight-week series. As a church, if you're new, we do a lot of series. A, a, a series is basically we pick a topic and then tell you everything we know about that topic and then we move on to a new topic. And our series on average are anywhere from two weeks to to, uh, this will be the longest one at eight weeks. And uh, I'm very excited because we're picking the topic Christian. You know, this word Christian. And in week number one, this opening message, we're talking about the brand recognition of the word Christian or the brand identity of this word Christian. Like, what, what, is, what is our brand identity? What is the brand recognition of this word? So I'm going to begin by doing a little word association with you to, to, to get you thinking. Um, first off, we all know what an American is, yes or no? Uh, we all know what an American is. We all know what an Egyptian is. We all know what a Canadian is. Uh, We all know what a comedian is. But what about this? What is a 
Christian. What is a Christian? You know, if I divided this room up into groups of 10 and asked you to come up with a definition for the word Christian, we wouldn't get the same answer. Uh, I don't even think we would get the same answer a couple times. I think every group would come up with its own unique individual definition of this word Christian. It's why if somebody walked up to you on the street and asked you the question, are you a Christian? We would get all sorts of responses. Some of you would say, yes, but some of you would say, uh, I am, but I'm not like them. Some of you would say, well, can, can, I, can I explain it to you first? I mean, you would have all different responses if somebody asked you, are you a Christian? Some of you, the tradition you grew up in, you became a Christian. That was, that was my tradition growing up Southern Baptist is it was praying the prayer. Like if you prayed the prayer, you became a Christian. Uh, for some of you, it was baptism. Like you were baptized and you became a Christian. Like you don't even remember it, but your parents told you you were baptized years ago. You don't remember it, but you became a Christian when you were baptized. For some of you, it was a confirmation. Uh, you took a certain number of classes, and after these classes, you became a Christian. For some of you, you were taught that your brand of Christianity equals the true brand of Christianity. Like, like you grew up Catholic, and anytime somebody mentions the church, you assume they're automatically talking about you because we're Catholic. We are the church. We, we, I don't know about the others, but we're the church. And then the Protestants were raised thinking why, that they're so arrogant, thinking they're the only ones. They're not the church. They're just part of the church. That you know, we're all the church. Uh, I again, I grew up Southern Baptist, and so we knew growing up that our brand was the true brand because we were the only ones that had Sunday night church. And I'm not talking about like the way we do it here. I'm talking it was an entirely different church service. Like, so you didn't go to church once on Sunday. If you were Baptist, you went twice on Sunday. We went Sunday morning and it was one message. And then we went back to church Sunday night and it was an entirely different message. So we knew we were the true brand. Then some of you today would say, you know, I was a Christian, but I'm not anymore. Like, like you know, I, I was at this camp, and they were talking about hell, and it was really scary, and, and I didn't want to go there, and so I raised my hand, and, and then I kind of grew up out of it, and, and so I was, but I'm not anymore. And then there's also a group here today that would say there's no such thing as I was a Christian, because once saved, always saved. Then we have another group in Christianity who would say, uh, no, you, you can lose your salvation. You need to get saved every week. Again, that was me. We were taught that like, if you had a bad thought during the week, you had to go get saved on Sunday all over again. Like, like if you had a bad thought and Jesus came back, you were through. Like, like you, just, you missed out and you were going to hell. And it was just, that was just the way it was. There's all these different brands of Christianity. And then there's a group that, uh, if you were honest here today, would say, you know what? I hate Christians. And I hate anything that has anything to do with Christianity. And if I were to give you like a, a full screen definition on what Christian means to you, this is what you would come up with right here. You would say Christians are judgmental, homophobic, moralists who think they are the only ones going to heaven and secretly relish the fact that everyone else is going to hell. Can I get an amen? 
Uh, you have never said amen in church before, and you just said, whatever that is, yes, that's me. I'll say amen to that. And, and if you don't feel that way, you at least know people who do feel that way. And I think all of us from time to time living in the church world, you know, the preacher gets going a different direction. We, you know, that wells up inside of us to a degree. And then we're like, that, that's just not me. And, and this is why if somebody walks up to you on the street and asks you the question, are you a Christian, you would say, can I qualify that first? Can, 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 I, I am, but, but let me explain. So let me give you some good news and some bad news today. Here's the good news. None of what we just talked about or described is, is described in the Bible as being a Christian. None of that is described in the Bible as being a Christian. That's the good news. Here's the bad news. Everything you have ever thought about being a Christian and everything you've ever thought about Christianity is completely wrong. That's the bad news. And I know some of you are going to leave here today and you're not going to believe anything I have to say. And you're going to go home and you're going to get your Bible and you, you know, blow the dust off of it and say, you know, I, I got to see if what he's saying is true. And, I, you know, I think if I can at least get you to open the Bible, I get like a gold medal for that or something. Some kind of award, or, or some of you will leave and you're going to go call your real pastor because you don't consider me your real pastor. You're going to like, you know, I need to make an appointment. You'll call your priest or whatever and say, you know, I need to sit down and, and figure this thing out. Because he, he, here's the truth. The term Christian only appears in the Bible three times. The term Christian is only in the Bible three times. And it's not defined at all. Like there is no definition in the entire Bible for this word Christian. And what we're going to discover today is it actually was a derogatory term that was placed on the Jesus community by people who are outside the Jesus community. The Jesus community never used this term to describe themselves. It was always outsiders. It was like if you got like this, 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 this group of people, they become social outcasts or whatever. And like the, like the, the, all, everyone else comes up with a name for them. Like in high school, the geeks or, or the stoners. I can't even really use the words uh, that Christian would represent today because it would be too offensive. They would be more like racial slurs today. That's what this word Christian represented to them. It was a very derogatory and very offensive term uh, used to describe the Jesus community. And it's only mentioned three times in the Bible. And each time it's in reference to outsiders describing the followers of Jesus. The first time this word Christian is mentioned in the Bible, it's first mentioned in the book of Acts. Let me explain the book of Acts to you. The book of Acts isn't actually a book. It's an ancient manuscript. It was combined with other ancient manuscripts to put together what we now have today as the New Testament. Uh, the book of Acts is all about uh, kind of, it, it described what happened after Jesus left. You know, Jesus, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of the gospels, and there's Jesus. And then Jesus leaves planet earth and he goes up to be with his father and leaves his spirit with us. And so the book of Acts describes what happened after he left, how the church got started and how we basically got here 
today. And so he, 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 you know, he, he raises from the dead, goes to heaven, and then they start this, this movement that they call the way. And there's all these Jewish people in, in, in ancient Jerusalem becoming converts to the way. And then persecution breaks out against them and scatters them all throughout this ancient Middle Eastern world. And some of these people got relocated. Some of these Jewish followers of the way got relocated to the ancient city of Antioch, which is in modern-day Turkey. And their message uh, to the people of Antioch was basically, look, a man rose from the dead. And we saw it, and other people saw it, and we now follow him. And, and if you know anything about the, this culture of history, you know that there's no way they would have made this story up. You know, a lot of people say, well, they just made up. You know, if you understood what Jewish people of this time period thought of resurrection, you don't start a, a whole religion based on somebody being resurrected from the dead if it didn't actually happen because nobody would have believed you and nobody would have followed you if it wasn't true. And that's just, you know, a little footnote in history when you understand the culture and the mindset of these people. But but simply a man rose from the dead. We saw it. So did other people. And so you've got a bunch of these Greek-speaking, Roman-minded people in Antioch who embraced this new movement, which was considered a knockoff cult of, of Judaism and all these new converts. And then word gets back to Jerusalem where all the leaders of the church are. You've got Peter and, and John and James. James was the pastor of Jerusalem at this time. He was the brother of Jesus. And I think James is probably one of the most uh, convincing facts of of Jesus being the Messiah that we have. Because, I mean, think about it for a moment. How would you convince your brother that you were actually the Messiah if you grew up with him? I mean, I mean, James to me is probably one of the most convincing proofs that, that Jesus was who he said he was. Because, I mean, there's no other way your brother would believe, buy into this and follow if it wasn't true. So the leaders of Jerusalem decide to send Barnabas to the city of Antioch to check out what's going on, to see if it's legit, and, and, and to you know, kind of minister to all of these new converts of the way. And, and Barnabas realizes there's, there, there's many of them. There's like a whole bunch of them. And so he needs some help. So Barnabas goes to the city of Tarsus, which is the Apostle Paul's hometown, to look for Saul. Saul was Paul before he renamed himself uh, 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 Paul and wrote, you know, half the Bible. And we've got this little piece of scripture that gives us an insight into where this word Christian originated. Acts chapter 11, verse 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus. That was, again, Paul's hometown to look for Saul, who later becomes Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. And so for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. So these, these, all these people being converted to this story of a guy raising from the dead and all these people saw him and, and, and now all of these converts to this, to this story that they called the way. Now look at this statement here. The disciples were called Christians, and there's a very negative connotation here in the Greek. They were called Christians first at Antioch. So this is the first place, like, like all these outsiders are looking at all these people buying into this message, becoming converts, and, 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 and they're looking at them like freaks. And so they come up with a name for them, and they call them Christians in a very offensive 
way. And we have further evidence of this uh, through a real fascinating piece of history. Anybody that took any history classes in college, you remember there was a Roman historian named Tacitus that died in AD 117. And, and Tacitus wrote during the first century about some of the Caesars of Rome. And one of the Caesars he wrote about was Nero. Nero around AD 64, came up with this bright idea. He decided he was going to destroy the city of Rome with fire and then rebuild it. And it didn't go well for him because he made a lot of people mad because he burned down their houses and burned down their businesses. And so he needed a scapegoat. And so Nero decided to blame the fire on a group of people. And who did Nero blame for this fire? It's not a trick question. Who did he blame? The Christians. The Christians, do you know why you know that? You know that because of a piece of Tacitus's history that he wrote. So let me show you, uh, let me show you the quote out of one of Tacitus' records. Consequently, to get rid of the report, the report was that he burned down the city, uh, Nero. Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations, called Christians by the populace. See, Christians didn't call themselves Christians. Christians called themselves something else. It was the populace, the outsiders that called them Christians. Going on, Tacitus says, Christus, which is Christ, from whom the name had its origin. Now, let me explain that for a moment. The Romans who documented this entire thing, uh, all along, they kept hearing this word Christus or Christ being used, and they thought it was Jesus' last name. It was like Mary Christ, Joseph Christ, Jesus Christ. They didn't understand the word at all. They thought it was his last name, and, and the Greek-speaking people that became followers of, uh, of Christus, now the word Christus is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. And because the Greeks weren't Jewish, they didn't use the Hebrew word. They used the Greek word Christus because uh, they didn't call him Jesus. They just said we're followers of Christus. And the Romans just thought it was his last name. And so they actually named the movement for what they thought was Jesus' last name, which, which Christ just means Messiah or Lord, Lord and Savior. And so it says Christus, and, and going on in the, the quote here, it says suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus or Pontius Pilate. This shows you that the Bible isn't some isolated book outside of history, but the Bible coincides with historical records. This is a Roman record talking about Christ getting the, the, the worst penalty, which was crucifixion during the time of Rome at the hands of Pontius Pilate, which we know from Scripture. So Jesus, we know through history, was an actual person who was crucified, and we know that he was raised from the dead because there's no way you start a religion in first century uh, Jerusalem amongst Jewish people with the story of a resurrection because they didn't believe in resurrection. And so that story would have never worked to start a religion if it didn't actually happen. But here's the point. You have these outsiders looking in on this movement, and they're trying to come up with a name for the movement that's offensive and derogatory, and so they name this movement Christian. But the Christians did not call themselves Christians. They used a term to describe themselves that is far more terrifying, that should be much more disturbing to us and clearly defined. 
And that's why one of the reasons you can't find five people to give you the same definition of the word Christian is because it's not defined. Like if you've ever wondered, why is there so many knockoff cults of Christianity? You know, why is there so many weird sects and denominations? Why are there all these different brands of Christianity? Why on every single issue, whether it's, you know, social, uh, same-sex marriage, abortion, or political, conservative, liberal, why every single war, why, why in every single thing out there, you will find Christians on both sides of the fence? Because there's no definition of it. There's only other two other mentions of the word Christian in the Bible. One is Peter talks about in his letter that, you know, some of you are being persecuted because you're a quote unquote Christian. You've been called a Christian. And so they're persecuting you because you have this label. The other mention is Paul in Acts 26. He's sharing the gospel on trial. And King Agrippa says to him, what are you trying to do? Make me a Christian. That's the only time. But in the Bible, there is a term that the Jesus community used to describe themselves very, 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 very consistently. And it's the term disciple. Disciple. And the reason why this should be so disturbing to you today is because this term disciple in Scripture is clearly defined. It's clearly spelled out. You can hide behind Christianity all you want to hide behind Christianity. Like you can go to war in the name of Christianity. You can blow up abortion clinics in Christianity. You can, you can sleep around outside of marriage in the name of Christianity. You can decide that you're going to leave your wife in the name of Christianity. You can leave your husband in the name. You can do anything you want to do as a Christian. And nobody has any grounds to tell you you can't. But you lock into this word, disciple. And oh my goodness, I mean, it takes you to an entirely different level. Let me give you some examples. Uh, Again, let's go back to Acts 11. You'll have a whole new meaning out of this statement now. The disciples were called Christians. See, if you ask the followers of Jesus, what are you? They would say, we are disciples. That's what we are. We're, We're not Christians, we're disciples. So here's the question. What is a disciple? What is a disciple? A disciple in the English is the same as in the Greek. The Greek word was methetos. And a disciple simply means a learner, a pupil, an apprentice, an adherent, a follower. That's what a disciple is, a follower. A disciple is somebody that asks, how would you respond to this situation? Because that's how I'll respond to it. What would you do if you were in my shoes? That's what I'll do. See, a disciple is somebody that is looking for someone to say, give me direction. Show me how you want me to live my life. How do you do it? That's how I'll do it. How do you, how do you live? That's how I live. How, do you, how does marriage work for you? That's how marriage works for me. A disciple is a follower. A disciple is someone who says, the answer, even before you give it to me, my, my response is yes. Like even before you tell me whatever you're going to tell me, the answer for me is yes. Yes. Now, now, what do you think I should do? That's very different from being a Christian, isn't it? 
That's very different. Now, now, don't worry. I know some of you are worried thinking that we're going to change the name now and you're going to have to go to work tomorrow and say, you know, I'm no longer a Christian. I'm now a disciple. And you're like, I don't want to say that word. I mean, it's just weird. I mean, I don't want to. But that's the point. It is, it, it's, a, it's a strong word. Now, I don't think we need to change the name. We can still be Christians because that's, you know, what people know us as. But, but, I mean, disciple, disciple, it's hard to dodge that word, isn't it? It's hard to misdefine it. It's hard to, you know, the word Christian, you can redefine, you can undefine, you can misdefine. You, know, you, you can make being a Christian mean anything you want it to mean. But this word disciple, it's hard to mess with this word because it's so clearly spelled out in Scripture. Let me give you some more examples. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. So the word of God spread, and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Acts 9, 26. When he, talking about the apostle Paul, came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, and rightfully so, because Paul was a serial killer. And he didn't just kill anyone. He killed the followers of Jesus. And so they didn't know if he was faking it, trying to infiltrate their group, or if he was you know, genuinely converted. And so they were afraid. Uh, because they didn't believe that he really was a disciple. Acts chapter 9, this is for all the women. A disciple can be male or female. In Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha. She was always doing good and helping the poor. So here's the point so far in the series. We can hide behind the word Christian all we want to hide behind the word, but when you look into the New Testament, they use this word to disciple, to describe who they are. So, so here, here's, let me give you this disturbing question that you really need to take to heart today. Are we disciples or are we just Christians? Are we disciples or are we just Christians? Are you a follower? Is the answer, yes, Jesus, I don't even need to know what you're about to say. The answer is yes. Or are you just a Christian? It's disturbing, isn't it? It's challenging. Makes you really reevaluate what what, what we're following today. And so, in closing, I want to take you to 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 a place in time, a place in Scripture where Jesus is meeting with his guys, the guys that want to be his followers, his disciples, and he's running out of time. And so he sits down with his guys and he says, listen, if you miss everything else, let me give you the bottom line of what it means to be my follower. Let, let me give you your specific marching orders. Like, like if, if, if you don't hear anything else that I have to say, this is the bottom line. This is the bare minimum. I forget about everything else, but, but just get this one right. And what he's about to say isn't new. It isn't new. You've seen this many, many times. But what would have happened if we as followers of Jesus had just gotten this one area right? What would have happened in this world? Like how radically different would our world be if, if, if we didn't just follow the Ten Commandments and the entire New Testament and all of Paul's teaching, but if we just followed this one command from Jesus, how radically different would our world be? There very likely would have never been a World War I if we got this right. There without a doubt would have never been a Second World War. There would have never been slavery in our country if we had gotten this right. There would have never been a civil rights movement or even a need for a civil rights movement in our nation if we would have just gotten this one thing, right? So we're at the end of his ministry. This, he's having the last Passover supper with his guys. 
It's the very end. He's, he's running out of time. And this is actually our one-year Bible reading today. So I, I, I'm excited that it coincided perfectly. So go home today. Uh, read your one-year Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we've got plenty available to give away outside. Uh, we're very passionate about our one-year Bible reading plan. And so this, this is the passage from the New Testament today in the one-year Bible. He, he says to his guys, verse 33, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. And you're going to look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you can't come. And at this, Peter would have perked up. You know, we see it later in the story and, and would have been like, what do you mean we can't go with you? Like, like we go where you go, Jesus. Like, I, I'm going, you're not just leaving me out. Is Andrew going to get to go? Because uh, if Andrew's going, I'm definitely going. Like, like, we're going with you, Jesus. And so Jesus, you know, he kind of moves on and, 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 and says, verse 34, he says, a new... A new. Now, this word new in the Greek could also be translated as strange or unusual. Uh, it's not just new. It could be like, like I'm giving you the strange or unusual or, or something that's so, you know, plain to see that you've totally missed it. Command, love one another. And at this, the disciples would have thought, you know, that's not new, Jesus. You've said that before. That's in the Old Testament. That's not new. But then Jesus elaborates a little bit further on how he wants them to do this. He says, as I have loved you, I want you to love one another. I want you to do this the way I've loved you. Matthew, do you remember when we first met you, Matthew? And and to which the disciple Matthew would have put his head down. He said, Matthew, you were a traitor. Everybody hated you. I mean, you, you sold out to the Romans exploiting your own people. You were a tax collector. And how did I treat you, Matthew? Like I said, come follow me. And, and, and guys, you know, when we first met Matthew, what did you think? And the guys were like, we didn't like him at all. We didn't want to be around the guy. And then Jesus takes them to a party at Matthew's house with a bunch of people that their parents said you should never hang out with. And then Jesus would have looked at Nathaniel. And Nathaniel, what did you say about me when your brother first told you about me? And, and you guys don't know this, but Nathaniel's brother is here. And he'll tell you, you know, his brother came to him and said, we met the Messiah. He's from Nazareth. And Nathaniel, what did you say? You said, can anything good come from Nazareth? You dissed my entire family, Nathaniel. And how did I treat you? He's saying, guys, I want you to love each other the way that I Love you. And then he says in verse 35, by this, by this one thing, by, by this, th- th- this, this one relational dynamic, everyone will know that you are my what? Disciples. Disciples, if you love one another. Christian, we can all be Christians. I mean, that's easy. Love each other the way Jesus loved. Now we're like in this subset, aren't we? Now we're like in this like minority. I, honestly, I don't know how to exegete my way out of this one. I mean, this is like, it's so clear. Like, I know that you're all Christians, but are you disciples? And here's my favorite part of the story. Uh, this is funny to me. Jesus, okay, again, he's given in the final thoughts. Like, like, this is it, guys. This is the most important thing I'm ever going to tell you. You know, by this one relational dynamic, you're going to change the world. Like, if you miss everything else, get this. And in verse 36, Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? I mean, that love thing is awesome, Jesus, but where are you going? I want to go with you, Jesus. Like, I want to be at your right hand. Let I'll die with you. And Jesus looks at him and said, man, Peter, come on. I mean, a couple hours from now, a middle school girl is going to intimidate that you even know me. It's like, Peter, I don't want you to die for me. 
Peter, I don't even want you to go with me. I want you to do something much, much more difficult than all of that. What could be more difficult? Peter, I want you to love these guys the way that I loved you. See, what Jesus is saying is I want people to be drawn into this Jesus community because they are in such awe of the way we love each other. Like people to come to the edge, people to look in, outsiders to be attracted to what we are and what we have and say things like, look at how they treat each other. Look at the way their husbands treat their wives. Look at the way their wives treat their husbands. Look at the way they treat their children. Look at the way they take care of the widows and the poor. They are generous to a fault. Look at how they respond to persecution. It's as if they're not even afraid of death. Look at how they love. Like, I don't know if I ever want to be one of them, but I'd love to work for one. Look at the way they treat their employees. I don't know if I'd ever want to be one, but I'd love to hire them. They're so honest. They, they mess up. You don't even have to go to them. They come to you and confess, and they're just, they're so honest. I don't know if I'd ever want to be one, but I'd love for my daughter to marry a guy that would treat her the way they treat their wives. Could you imagine what our world would look like if we just got this one command right? I mean, forget being a Christian. We're going to be disciples, We're going to get this one thing right. It's as if, like, I want to launch a rebranding campaign. Like, let's begin a rebranding campaign. And here's the thought. What if we loved each other the way Jesus loved us? What if you began to love your wife the way Jesus loved you? What if you began to love your husband and your relationships and your marriages and your children and your workplace and your friendships? What if you began to love? See, Jesus knew it. Jesus knew what would happen by this, by this one thing, this one relational dynamic, this defining character. Again, it's not how loud you pray and how much you know about me and how good you sing. And and, and it's not about any of that. It's this one thing that they're going to know. Well, you know, my, my small group leader is a really good Bible teacher. Yeah, but no one likes them. Not how much you know. So let me just say two things before we leave today. Number one, if you are a follower of Jesus, like if if you fall into that category of the Jesus community and you follow him, I want you to try this out for a week. I want you to try this for a week. And listen, let me just say up front, I know, I know, I get it. I, I know that your wife is a wreck. I know it, I know it. Like I know that your husband is an absolute mess. I know that your children are nightmares, and I know that you teenagers, your parents haven't had an original idea since 1982. I get it. I get the fact that everyone around you is a complete idiot. You are the only balanced person you know. Like, I get it. But what if, what would it look like if you began to love them the way Jesus loved you? And and can I say, it's not always going to work out for you. I mean, Jesus did it and they crucified him. (laughs) This is prepare yourself. This is not like, don't come to me 10 days later and say, you know, I did this and my wife, she didn't change at all. This is not a means to an end. This is not a, I'm going to fix you thing. This is what it means to be a, a disciple. This is way better than being a Christian. It's way better than being a Christian. 
This is how the Roman Empire was completely toppled without an army. Because people looked in at this community and they were shocked by how they treated each other. So that was number one. Number two, for those of you that might be with us today and and what you've experienced and what you've seen, you think that, you know, Christians are a bunch of judgmental, homophobic moralists who love the fact that everyone's going to hell but them. If If that's you, let me say, honestly, if I had experienced what you had experienced growing up, if I had seen what you had seen, if my dad would have treated my mom the way your dad treated your mom or the way your mom treated your dad, if I, if, if I, if I had seen all that, you know what? I'd feel the very same way that you feel. So I don't judge you. But here's my hope for you. I, I know that nobody will ever be able to redefine the word Christian in such a way that you'll ever want to be one. I, I know that. But my hope today is that in all your rejection of the word Christian and Christianity, I hope that you won't miss Jesus. Hope that you don't miss Jesus because Jesus, my savior and your savior, he puts all of us on common ground. I mean, if you think about it, what you hate about Christians is actually what you hate about yourself. It's that all of us fall short. And I'm not just talking about God's standards. I'm talking about our own standards. I'm not even consistent with what I believe. You're not even consistent with what you believe. So we all have to figure out how to deal with our failure. We've all got to figure out how to deal with our disappointments and our sin and our shortcomings. And most importantly, we've got to figure out how to deal with this incredible chasm, this divide between us and God, this separation. And I hate that Christianity was so poorly represented that you might miss what Jesus did for you. And I don't say that because I'm better. I say that because it's my story. Like for those of you that know my story, that was my story. You know, my dad was a preacher growing up. My dad abandoned our family, had a bunch of affairs on my mom. That was my view of Christianity. That was my view of God. That's why for many, many years, I wanted nothing to do with God, nothing to do with Christianity. I remember what it was like growing up in the South in a church that because my parents were divorced, my friends were no longer allowed to hang out with me because we were now bad. Because we were the divorced kids. Because that was the cardinal sin of our church. And so for years of my life, I missed out on God and I missed out on Jesus because of some people who terribly, terribly misrepresented him to me. And I pray today that you won't miss him, that you won't miss who he is because some people failed you. Because none of us are perfect. None of us will get it right every time. So don't hold Jesus accountable for the areas that we failed. Don't miss him today because he loves you. Would you close your eyes for a moment? Now, as we leave here today, let me just say, I want to invite you to experience Jesus today. Uh, I'm not asking you to become a quote unquote Christian. I'm not asking you to join a church. I'm simply asking you to say yes to Jesus 
who's never failed you, who loves you, who's done everything he could to rescue you. And all he wants is for you to be a part of his family. And all you have to do is respond to him by saying, yes, yes, I want to be your follower, Jesus. I want to be your follower. And the way we do that is, you know, the Bible says we, we just believe in our heart. And so I'm going to leave you in a simple prayer. And as you pray this prayer, there's nothing magical about it. It's just you pray this prayer in your heart and Jesus will respond to you today. He will absolutely respond to you today. And so whoever needs to pray with me, I'm not going to ask you to stand up or come down to the front. You know who you are. Some of you, this could be the very first time you've ever said yes to him. Some of you, it's time to come back to him. Like you, you got angry at him because of what somebody else did. And it's time for you now to kind of restore that relationship by saying yes to him again. And so if that's you, I want to lead you in a very, very simple prayer. And just so I know who's joining me in prayer with nobody looking around, would you just raise your hand and say, you know what, I'm joining you today. I'm going to pray this in my heart today. Just raise your hand right now so that I know who's joining me right now. Thank you. Is there anyone else? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anybody else? Thank you. Is there anybody else? I appreciate those hands. Here's the prayer. It's very simple. Just say, Jesus, I invite you to come into my life and be a part of my life. Jesus, I admit that without you, I am lost in my sin. There's no other way around it. So Jesus, I ask that you forgive me of my sin. And he will. And then lastly, just say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you. Amen. Look up for just a moment. In your worship guide, there's a connection card. And I want to encourage those of you that prayed with me to take one more step. This is something you do totally on your own. On the connection card, there's two boxes. One says, I'm committing my life to Christ. One says, I'm renewing my commitment to Christ. If your prayer reflected either one of those decisions, we'd love to know about it first so that we could pray for you. And then second, so that we can send you an email that gives you the next steps of what it means to follow him. Some, some very basic next steps of following Jesus to help you in the journey that you are beginning. So I encourage you to do that on your own. And then let me say before we leave, this eight-week series is going to be a great series for any friends that you have that are skeptical, that are atheists, that, that are angry at God, angry at the church. I'm going to be going hard on the church and holding us accountable. Uh, and it's going to be uncomfortable for some of us because I think there's times where we need to hold ourselves accountable and really call out what's not right. And so we're going to take a, a long, hard look at who we are as the church and really what Jesus always wanted us to be according to his word. And so this is going to be a great series for people that you know who are just away from God or maybe they've never even been to church a day in their life. This is going to be a great series for them to discover what Jesus is really all about. So I want to encourage you to bring people. Next week, we're going to look at the story of Anne Rice, uh, one of the most, she wrote Interview with a Vampire and all the vampire novels, one of the most uh, best-selling author of all time, I think, over 90 million copies sold and real well-known famous atheist that actually found Christ. And we're going to look at her story of how it all happened. And it's, it's really a compelling story. Would you stand with me as we close? Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray over every person here, God, that they would begin to see you for who you are. 
and see what you came to start, the church, for, its, for, for the purity of what the church was always supposed to be. And help us as a community of people that follow you to begin to reflect this great command that we would love each other, that the people of North County would look at our church family and say, I've never seen a church love each other that way. I mean, they don't talk bad about each other. They encourage one another. They support each other. Like, I just have never seen a group of people, I've never seen husbands treat wives that way and wives treat husbands that way and and parents and kids and just their relationship. There's something so attractive about that church and it's their love for one another. So God, let this be our, our mission statement as a church to really reflect that we are your disciples and we are followers. We're not just Christians, we're your followers. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week, everybody.